All right, welcome. Let's get into uh, Ezekiel chapter 4. Title of our message, Iron Chef Hebraica. Wait until you see this. It's appropriate, actually. Do you remember Baghdad Bob? How many of you remember Baghdad Bob? Uh, Terry does. thought some more of you Navy guys would. Yeah, there, there you go. Okay, if you think about it. He was the colorful guy, the nickname given to Mohammed Saeed al-Sha'af, the Iraqi information minister during the 2003 invasion of Iraq to depose Saddam Hussein. He became infamous for his propaganda-filled press briefings at the beginning of the war. <clears throat> On April 7th, 2003, for example, Al-Shahaf claimed there were no American troops in Baghdad and that Americans were committing suicide by the hundreds at the city's gates. At that very time, American tanks were patrolling the streets only a few hundred meters from the location where he was giving one of his last press conferences uh, before he had to go into hiding. He gained something of a cult following in the Western world. He appeared on t-shirts, cartoons, and on the internet. One such site featured sound bites of the minister as well as Photoshop pictures of him on the Star Wars Death Star maintaining everything is just fine. Uh, it was uh, pretty funny. Sixth century Judah had its versions of this guy. They were false prophets who were telling the Jews that everything was going to be okay, that the exile in Babylon would be short-lived and that the temple could never fall. Ezekiel was in Babylon charged with telling the exiles there the truth. Jerusalem would suffer a third siege during which the temple would be ruined and the glory of God would depart from Israel. His telling of the truth would not just be very dramatic, it would be accomplished through drama. Ezekiel would come out of his house each day and he would perform a four-act drama telling the immediate future of Jerusalem. We'll look at it uh, one full act at a time, reserving the fourth and final act for our next study. So we're going to look at Acts 1 through 3 tonight, beginning in verse 1. You also, son of man, take a clay tablet and lay it before you and portray on it a city, Jerusalem. Lay siege against it, build a siege wall against it, heap up a mound against it, set camps against it also, and place battering rams against it all around. Moreover, take for yourself an iron plate and set it as an iron wall between you and the city. Set your face against it and it shall be besieged and you shall lay siege against it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. Uh, again, notice Ezekiel is told to take an iron plate which is probably a cooking pan, and in a moment he's going to bake some bread, hence Iron Chef. Get it? Took me all day. I'd have a much deeper study. I'd have some insight if I hadn't thought about that. But anyway, beginning with chapter 4 and now continuing through chapter 24, Ezekiel prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem. Four symbolic acts in chapters 4 and 5 serve as visual lessons, object lessons. We know from our last study that Ezekiel was bound by ropes inside his house. It wasn't his enemies, however, that bound him. It was probably his family or neighbors who bound him. He was bound every day in obedience to the word of the Lord to portray that God had him as a prisoner. 
It was an object lesson to show the Jews that they too would be bound in the sense that they would remain in exile in Babylon for quite some time. They would be in their own homes and their own communities, but they would be prisoners nonetheless. Ezekiel, we saw, was also what we called an intermittent mute. He only spoke when God told him to, and then he only spoke the words that God wanted him to speak. The rest of the time, Scripture says that his tongue was stuck to the roof of his mouth. Uh, And so uh, God did that through him as well. Now we see that he would come out of his house each day and perform a drama. We can assume he was unbound at some point in order to act out the various parts of the drama. Act 1 involved what is variously translated as a tile or a brick or a clay tablet. Soft clay would be baked to make it durable and then it would be used for writing or drawing. I'm told great quantities of these have been uncovered in Babylon by archaeologists. This is a very common kind of a substance uh, and situation. On the tablet, Ezekiel drew the city of Jerusalem each day. The people who gathered to see the daily drama would immediately recognize the shape of the city and its major features. After completing the drawing of the city, Ezekiel then lay siege against it. He constructed a siege wall and mounds and camps and battering ramps. He's kind of like a little boy playing with army men. Uh, I can remember I used to go down to my friend's house down the street. It was about as far as my parents would let me walk. And and his name was Harlan. And we'd go up. He had a two-story apartment. We'd go upstairs and we'd divide his army men. And we'd have wars, rubber band wars. And whoever, you know, we'd each get a shot and whoever had the last army man standing would win. And so this is the kind of thing that Ezekiel is doing. He, he comes out and he draws out the city and then he starts building siege ramps and he gets battering rams and he builds camps for the various soldiers. Seems like this is a pretty detailed model. Uh, I, I don't know how he made little soldiers, but he did that. But surely Jerusalem would stand. Surely God would not let His glory depart. After all, that's what the so-called prophets were proclaiming back in Judah with the notable exception of God's true prophet, and that is Jeremiah. Now came the dramatic final movement of Act 1. Ezekiel took an iron plate and placed it between himself and the city. This may not strike terror into our hearts, but it would strike terror in the heart of a Jew. Allow me to read a lengthy passage from Deuteronomy that ends uh, with a note of iron. It says in verse uh, 28, or excuse me, chapter 28, verse 15 of Deuteronomy, But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all His commandments and His statutes, which I command you today, all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country, Cursed shall you be in baskets and cursed in your kneading bowls. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you cursing, confusion and rebuke in all that you set your hand to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings 
in which you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the plague cling to you until he has consumed you from the land which you are going to possess. The Lord will strike you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with severe burning fever, with the sword, with scorching, and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. Your heavens which are over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you shall be iron." And so uh, the Jew would understand this reference to iron between Ezekiel and the city as God fulfilling these terrible curses uh, based on their disobedience that he was, had set himself against them as iron. All the curses of disobedience were going to come to pass. Other passages such as in Leviticus and Deuteronomy speak of God setting his face against his people if they disobeyed and rebelled. Lights down, curtain, end of act one, as it were, as Ezekiel is out there in front of his house, maybe in a courtyard. I don't, we don't know what kind of a thing he had set up, but he's acting this out. Act two begins in verse four. Lie also on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity. For I have laid on you the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days 390 days, so you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when you have completed them, lie again on your right side, then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I have laid on you a day for each year. Therefore you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem, your arm shall be uncovered, and you shall prophesy against it, and surely I will restrain you so that you cannot turn from one side to another till you have ended the days of your siege." Now, this would be a good place to mention that liberal scholars, some of our favorite guys, uh, they like to suggest that Ezekiel suffered from epilepsy uh, and that this was uh, what was really happening with Ezekiel. He would come out to prophesy and then all of a sudden the tongue would stick to his mouth and he would go into an epileptic fit uh, and fall down. And, and that this, this in the liberal mind uh, solves everything. Uh, it, it answers every possible question and... Uh, of course, it's part of their theory that none of this was supernatural, but was rather superstitious. They say the Jews saw Ezekiel acting this way, and not knowing what we now know about modern medicine, they assumed that he was, uh, you know, just crazy. Now, all of these kinds of interpretations stem from a disbelief in the inspiration of the Bible. If the Bible is inspired, and it is, then this is what God commanded and empowered Ezekiel to perform. It was not an undiagnosed illness that had superstitious overtones. The liberal looks at the Bible and he assumes that it cannot be the inspired, infallible, authoritative word of God. And, and so he says something was going on with Ezekiel. And since we're so much smarter than these guys in the 6th century, he must have had epilepsy. He had a couple of episodes where he said a few things and the Jews capitalized on it by making him a hero, a prophet, touched by God. And after the fact, they wrote these things down so that it seemed like, you know, uh, they were really smart. What always amazes me is, is it just assumes that people who came before us were really, really ignorant cave dwellers. That, that you could write something that was absolutely false knowingly false, everybody knew it was false, but they wanted to believe it as a mythology and so they acted upon it as if it was true. 
Uh, and it just, it's just insane. Uh, now, God told Ezekiel to lie on his left side and put the sin of the house of Israel on himself. If Ezekiel prostrated himself with his head towards Jerusalem, he was facing north when he lay on his left side, south when he lay on his right side. His facing north, which represented the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, was to be for 390 days. After remaining on his left side for 390 days, he was to lie on his right side and bear the sin of the house of Judah. His facing toward the south, representing Judah, the southern kingdom, was to last for 40 days. It's best to understand him as lying on his side for a period of time each day for 390 days and then for the next 40 days. He did it as a part of this daily performance of the four-act drama. It'd be like us saying that we studied the book of Revelation for two and a half years. It doesn't mean that around the clock for two and a half years we were in the book of Revelation, though it seemed that way. No. It means that over you know, each week for a period of time we studied through the book of Revelation. And so this is part of what he's doing. Every day he would come out and he would make this model and he would, he would reenact this siege that scene would end with the iron plate, uh, which would t symbolize that God had set his face against them. And then he would lie on his side uh, for 390 days uh, and then for 40 days, uh, signifying the uh, punishment of Israel and Judah. Each day represented a year in the life of the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah. Scholars are baffled by the exact time periods. They, they don't know really what they refer to, when they begin, when they end, with what exact historic uh, movement. Some see them as referring to things that have happened in the past, while some see them as yet future to Ezekiel's prophesying. Now, God calls them years of their iniquity, so it seems best to see them as having occurred in the past before the siege that's being depicted. As far as when each period began, what triggered each, we are nowhere told. We only know that the length of the siege somehow corresponded to the years of their sin and rebellion according to some heavenly reckoning. And so God is reckoning with His people and, and He's been watching them and, and uh, ministering to them and sending them prophets. And here we're learning that for a period of 390 years in the northern kingdom and 40 years in the southern kingdom, uh, they have been walking in... Uh, iniquity. Now, God is merciful. He is long-suffering. We ought to revel in those things but not take advantage of them. I will still reap what I've sown. Uh, the, the law of sowing and reaping still works. Unless I confess my sin and experience the faithfulness of God in forgiving it and in cleansing me. The problem with the children of Israel is that they refused to repent. They refused to listen to the prophets. They were altogether disobedient and rebellious. Later on in Ezekiel, we're going to get a look into their hearts to see what kind of wickedness was taking place in their very minds and hearts. Uh, and so uh, now they were going to reap what they had sown. And, and you and I are going to reap what we have sown if we don't confess our sin where God is faithful and just to forgive it and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And even then, there could be consequences to my sin. There could be physical consequences, financial consequences. There could be social consequences. Not everything can be undone. You can be forgiven, 
in God's mercy, but some of the things, you know what I'm talking about, some of you, some of the things you've done, they can't be undone. They have, they have lasting consequences. The thing about sin is that we always think we're only doing it uh, you know, in a corner somewhere. Uh, it doesn't affect anybody else, but uh, you know, God is merciful, He's long-suffering. Man, if, if you've got sin, just confess it. Get rid of it now. Uh, minimize the possible consequences and, and eliminate the possibility that God is going to have to deal with it. If you won't, uh, just get rid of it. Tonight, when we're in our time of prayer, uh, you don't have to make a big deal about it publicly if you don't want to, but just ask the Lord to forgive you of the things that you are struggling with and that have a hold of your life uh, before He graciously busts you out on it. And, and you know, it gets worse uh, or there are some consequences that you never thought would happen. You know, you know some people, maybe you are those people who just, wow, how did that happen? Where did that come from? It, it just came from thinking that... Uh, God's glory could never depart from your life. That, that, you know, hey, I'm a Christian and God's going to take care of this. Uh, yeah, he's he looking for purity in our lives. And if he has to bust us, he will for our own good. How much better to confess our sin and let him uh, forgive them. Now, in verses 7 and 8, you get some stage direction for this drama. Ezekiel would come out for Act 2 and he would face the siege model he had built. Then he would bear one arm. Scripture that comes to mind is Isaiah 52.10, which says, The Lord has made bare His holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Next, he had to prophesy against the city. Perhaps he quoted from Isaiah, applying it as God, showing His power to the nations by allowing Babylon to besiege and destroy Jerusalem in His sight. Babylon was God's tool. We learn that. We see that, of course, but we also learn it directly from Habakkuk. God said, I'm going to bring the Babylonians to, to judge you. Uh, that's what I'm going to do. I am sovereign over all nations, you and the other nations. I'm going to bear my arm uh, and deal with this situation. And then finally, Ezekiel allowed himself to be tied up again to begin the ordeal of laying on his side for a period of time. Now, whatever side he was laying on had to bear the entire burden of his weight representing first Israel, then Judah, bearing punishment for their iniquities. A third siege against Jerusalem actually seemed unlikely. You students of history will know that, after all, Babylon was firmly in control of Jerusalem. But unknown to the exiles, but known to God, were the schemes of King Zedekiah back in Jerusalem, in Judah, to break the treaty with Nebuchadnezzar. When he was found out, he would incur the full wrath of the Babylonian monarch and Jerusalem would pay for it dearly. Zedekiah would too. He'd watch his sons killed and then have his eyes plucked out, uh, but, which was common for those days, I guess. But, uh, uh, and then Babylon would raise Jerusalem and the temple. On to Act 3, verse 9. Also take for yourself wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt. Put them into one vessel and make bread of them for yourself. During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days you shall eat it, and your food which you shall eat uh, shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day from time to time you shall eat it. You shall also drink water by measure, one-sixth of a hen from time to time you shall drink it. That's about a pint. You shall eat it as barley cakes, bake it using fuel of human waste in their sight. Then the Lord said, So shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles where I will drive them. So I said, uh, Lord, God, 
Indeed, I have never defiled myself from my youth till now. I have never eaten what died or of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has abominable flesh ever come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I am giving you cow dung instead of human waste, and you shall prepare your bread over it. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, surely I will cut off the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and shall drink water by measure and with dread. And they may lack bread and water and be dismayed with one another and waste away because of their iniquity. Now, obviously a city besieged was a city starving. Rationing would come first, but eventually the supplies of food and water and fuel would become depleted. You'd be forced to eat and drink things that were disgusting using fuel that was even more disgusting. Ezekiel's given a recipe for baking bread. One author, in looking at the list of ingredients, claims the following. Barley and millet throughout history had been considered poor man's food. Barley is a hardy grain that survives drought and frost. It also grows in alkaline soil. It is usually fed to livestock, but humans can eat it too if they can stomach the flavor. Millet is a bland-tasting grass used mainly in disadvantaged countries to feed the poor. The seeds are given to feed birds. The recipe was intended to help survive famine during an upcoming siege, not because it tastes good or that it's healthy for you. And so we're not serving this at Apples of Gold uh, on Monday night. We're having good food there. Now, it's a little comical that there is a company, some of you know this, called Food for Life, whose bread and grain products is called Ezekiel 4.9. And uh, you can buy this at health food stores and Christian outlets. You can get your Ezekiel 4.9 bread. Uh, Just know that uh, it wasn't a recipe for health. It was a recipe for... uh, Uh, survival. It was food that most people wouldn't eat unless they had to. Uh, I'm guessing that they don't cook it over dung, but uh, I don't know. Uh, You know, so uh, you definitely don't want any Ezekiel 4.9, you know, products. We can't help but focus on the fuel. Ezekiel was instructed to use his own waste or human waste as fuel. Now, the truth is, I had to research this. I really wanted to be accurate about this. The truth is, As a lot of you probably know, in many parts of the world, animal dung is used for fuel, uh, for heating, and for cooking. It was certainly used in the 6th century. According to the Jewish encyclopedia, it was used by the Jews. Human dung, however, is treated differently, not used for fuel. It wasn't to be handled. Its use would render the person defiled and the food defiled. And uh, it was showing the absolute awfulness of the siege. That that you get to the point where, what are we going to... We have a little bit of millet and spelt. What are we going to cook it with? Well, there's no animal dung. Is there any dung? Uh, We've never touched that stuff. Do we have to do that? Well, do you want to starve? It's kind of like the Jewish version of the Donner Party. You know, it's... it's and uh, yeah, you read about some of these sieges and they, they start eating their babies and stuff. I mean, we're talking about, you know, people who are starving. Uh, it's awful. Now, Ezekiel objected to the use of his own waste as fuel. It's just too much for him. He had always kept the law. God graciously allowed him to substitute cow dung. Now, personally, it's easy for me in the 21st century to say this, but I think Ezekiel's presentation would have been much more powerful if he had gotten over his inhibitions and realized this is you know, what God wants me to do, so I'm going to do it. 
But even God, this is, this is precious to me, even God won't make a person violate their conscience. Ezekiel said, you know, Father God, that, that's too much for me. I, I follow the law. And all this other stuff I understand, I know what you're doing, but this is a violation of, of the law and this would violate my conscience. And so God practices what we're learning in 1 Corinthians on Sunday morning. He says, all right, well, if that's going to stumble you, Ezekiel, even though I think it'd be rad, uh, go ahead and use cow dung uh, because he doesn't want to stumble his prophet. So how much more sensitive ought we to be? Now the drama is going to conclude with Act 4 in Chapter 5 uh, and a sermon that puts it all into perspective. Some of you have seen or even participated in the gospel being presented through drama. It can be very powerful. I know whenever we went overseas with the high school uh, to Honduras, uh, we always had uh, dramas that the kids would perform because of language barriers and stuff. These kind of uh, physical dramas that presented the gospel. Uh, I wouldn't mind and would welcome a quality drama ministry here at the church. Maybe, too, we should think of our own lives as being more dramatic. Or better yet, maybe we should think of a few dramatic ways in which we might call attention to the gospel and to Jesus. At the very least, we should understand the power of our example, however subtle it might be. If someone knows you're a Christian, then you can be sure they are watching you. Your acts have greater meaning to them because you've told them you live for God in the power of His Spirit. We're all actors, but in the truest, most honest sense. We are acting as ourselves, empowered by God. Each day we grow into the role more and more as we are being conformed into the image of Jesus. In his famous monologue from Shakespeare's As You Like It, you read, All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts. Uh, he goes on to describe what was commonly known as the seven stages of man from infancy to beyond old age when a man needs caring for just as he did when he was an infant. And so it's one of these kinds of tragic you know, uh, monologues where you see the, the condition of man from infant really to infant, you know, dust to dust. Well, that might describe the natural man, but it doesn't describe the spiritual man or woman that you and I are the man or woman who's been born again, the spiritual man interrupts that whole process. We are going from glory to glory on the earth until one day we are fully and finally glorified in heaven. Our bodies may be breaking down. In fact, they are breaking down. But God is renewing the inner man day by day as we become more like Jesus Christ. That is the drama that each of us is actually acting out. It may not be as dramatic as Ezekiel. I can't remember the last time I came out and cooked, you know, uh, spelt over cow dung in my front yard. You know, I just haven't been called to that, luckily. I've, I feel like I'm getting a word of knowledge that some of you are called to that. But, no, but seriously, you know, occasionally in our life, if you think about it enough, you've, you've probably done a few things that are a little bit out there, a little bit more dramatic. Uh, you know, maybe even just to the point of wearing a, a Christian shirt or something like that, carrying your Bible to work and getting rebuked for it. But even if you're not doing any of that, you are acting out this drama of changing from glory to glory in the Christian life. And people are watching you 
And that should be seen as a good thing, as a great thing. I mean, it's, it's not something to, oh, people are watching me, I've got to watch myself. Hey, no, it, people are looking at you. You and I, we're the prophets of God today. Uh, we're, the, we're the priests of God. Uh, we're the ones that say that we know Jesus and do know Jesus. And so what a blessing, what a joy for people to say, hey, I, uh, I just want to see how a Christian deals with these things, how a Christian goes through these things. Uh, and so... Uh, act yourself uh, in the sense of God filling you and using you.